invite Emily up to read the scriptures. Um, if you would stand as we just like recognize the authority of the scriptures and we stand underneath them together. So, but Emily's going to do our reading for us today. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. Um, today we're reading from Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard it that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what, re what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you to God. <laughs> I'm gonna pray now. Dear Father, um, I pray that we may be people who love others freely, love when it is inconvenient, when it is unreciprocated, and when it is undesirable. May we remember we can love in this way because we are held secure in your boundless love, and your love for us, your children, is never ceasing quiet our hearts and minds this morning and be with Nick as he teaches. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So we're excited today. Today we reach a great milestone in the life of River and Way. So we launched April 4th of this year, and today we finish one whole chapter of the Bible. So we are, we are done with Matthew 5 today. It's so exciting. There's going to be cake after. I'm just kidding. There's not. There's not. I know. Super, I, super downer. I'm sorry. There's not going to be cake. But we're excited. We made it through 48 Bible verses. Um, and so, yeah, really exciting that we've moved through one whole chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, but as we dive in today, what, is, uh, what we have to understand coming into today's text is that our world, the world around us, the world in which we live, is by and large a violent world. And I don't just mean because of war, although that's true, but at the very basic level of nature, we see violence and we experience violence. Often, um, if you visit nature, you experience peace and harmony and like the beautiful aspect of nature. But if you live in nature, you experience something very different. Uh, there's a book called The Stranger in the Woods, America's Last Great Hermit, about a man named Christopher Knight. He moved to the, uh, he moved to the woods of Maine and lived there for 27 years. He came across a person one time, said hi, um, but he lived by himself for 27 years in the woods, in the forest, never lit a fire, like just amazing. He, freezing cold winters, never lit a fire because he didn't want anyone to know he was there, broke into some houses nearby just to steal books and like essential food. So props to him. But um, he lived there for 27 years, and this is what he had to say after living there, is that, that nature in itself is, is extremely violent. It's filled with violence. That being inside of a tent while there's a three-week-long snowstorm that won't let up is, is an act of violence. That hearing in the middle of the night the pack of coyotes attack their next meal is the sounds that fill his tent with violence. That hearing the like soft crunching of the tree before it breaks in a windstorm and wondering whether that tree is going to fall on you or fall next to you. That these are, as you live in the woods, as you live in nature, you don't experience peace and harmony, but you actually experience the violence 
that exists in nature. And not to overplay the example, but quite literally since the fall of Genesis 3 through 11, there has been a continued cycle of violence in the human story and in creation. And I was preparing all week and even just thinking through history and like the amount of like, I don't know much about history, but I could tell you like war on war on war. And I was just going like, oh, how did we even make like, well done, humanity. We made it like it's, it's almost a bit shocking at points. And, and even then, it's not even so much like, look what we've achieved. We've survived this long. It's like, look, the Lord's hand has been on us like it was when he protected Cain after he killed Abel. The Lord allowed humanity, even though it was violent, to continue to exist. So it's not so much like our accomplishment of surviving, but an act of like God's grace to humanity. In this text of Scripture, like the last handful of teachings, is Jesus drawing on an interpretation of an Old Testament command. The people of his time are debating over, like, what does this mean? How do we live it out? How do we practice this? And the instruction to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, this teaching that Jesus is quoting, it it doesn't actually originate in the Old Testament. It originates before that. We see uh, in like 1750 BC, the Babylonian Empire has the Code of Hammurabi. And we see like things like eye for an eye come from there and love your neighbor and hate your enemy kind of come from the language that's used in those spaces. Because much of humanity has always believed that it's a fairly good idea to love those people that are near to us or in ancient language, a part of our tribe, but to keep distance from those that aren't a part of our tribe. So most of human history would agree that loving your neighbor is a good thing. Because, but at the same time, as long as we've loved our neighbor, we've also had this like disposition within humanity to act uh, wrongly or with evil towards those that aren't our neighbor for the sake of protecting our tribe. And so when Jesus comes in and, and teaches the Sermon on the Mount and he utters these words, love your enemy, the Jewish culture has a like long, deep history, as long as human history, of what it's like to experience violence as a people. If you were a first century Jew, your childhood would have been spent learning the scriptures. You would have memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You would know the story of Israelites being oppressed, being exiled under Egypt first, and then God delivering them. And then being exiled again under Babylonian control and then God delivering them. This is just a part of your childhood. This is a part of your story. And sewn into the very fabric of their story is this idea of being enslaved and oppressed. And if you were to look around at the time when Jesus is teaching this, while they weren't in exile, they were still in the promised land. The promised land had been overtaken by the Roman Empire. Jews were only allowed to live in a way that was honoring to God, quite honestly, as much as Rome would allow. So they're still under the boot of Rome when Jesus utters these words. You see, on every street corner, if you were there, you would see a Roman soldier who, who allows you to live in the way that he deems appropriate or that Rome deems appropriate. If you cross that boundary, Rome has no issue. There is no amount of violence that is too much for Rome to stop you from living the way that you want or the way they don't want you to. 
And if you're there each day, you would grow a little bit more hostile, a little bit more hard-hearted, a little, have a little more distaste for the people of Rome, while at the same time wondering where the God is of the stories of old. Or as the prophets would say, how long, O Lord? And as any good Jewish child would have learned one day, there would be a Messiah. There would be a Savior that would come to deliver God's people again. I imagine them crying out Psalm 107, verse 6. It reads, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And even as they prayed this, even as they cried this out, day after day after day, nothing seems to change. And even over time, messianic figures begin to show up on the scene. People who like rally around this new charismatic person who is championing the way of God. But each and every time they begin to like lean into a bit of a revolt or a revolution, Rome comes in and snubs that leader out, kills the leader. Like quite literally the, the messianic figure before Jesus I think, the, I think the number is 6,000 Jews were crucified for following this messianic figure. And so every time any person starts to gain influence in Jewish culture, Rome just does away with them. There's a famous phrase like Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. And what that means is like Rome will apply as much violence as necessary to keep peace. And so that is the backdrop of what is happening when Jesus teaches the Sermon on the Mount. They're oppressed. They're under the boot of Rome. They feel violence toward them as a people all the time. And then Jesus comes along and utters the phrase, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can you imagine what it must have felt like? that everyone who hears Jesus' words immediately goes, he wants us to love the Roman? He wants us to love the one who, like, enslaves us and oppresses us? Like, this is the, the, the people who walk away after the Sermon on the Mount. There's somebody going, like, dude, that guy's crazy. Like, like there's some things that he said that make sense, but, like, that love your enemies piece? That's like heretical. That's like anti-God. That's like anti-Jewish. There's people walking away going like, that, that surely can't be from the Lord. That surely can't be what God has for his people. And as we go through this teaching today, we, we want to explore what Jesus is saying. We want to explore what he's doing. And what, what he's doing in the first half of this verse, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Jesus is quoting Leviticus 19, verse 18. It says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus quotes this line in the Torah, and he drags with it the Jewish idiom and often the human idiom of the day that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
There's nowhere in the scriptures that says you should hate your enemy. So Jesus isn't quoting a command from the Mosaic law. Um, Jesus is quoting part of a command and then part of a cultural interpretation. So you could go home and read like Genesis to Malachi and you will not find hate your enemy. It's not there. So you could take my word for it or you could like, go read it. Have fun. Um, but, but there's a few things that when Jesus utters this phrase that it's, it's like worth taking the time to unpack. And the first is this word neighbor, which has, in cultural sense, in, in the first century ancient Near East, um, it has this lazy sort of cultural meaning compared to what Jesus has in mind or what, uh, or what God commands to Moses in the Torah. But first we must remember that loving our neighbor is an essential piece of following Jesus. When Jesus was asked about the most important commandment from the Old Testament, he said two things, um, which is very Jesus. Like, which one's the most important? These two. Um, so he says two things. The first is, love the Lord your God. And he goes on to continue to quote the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. And then he goes on to quote this, love your neighbor as yourself, referencing this passage in Leviticus 19. And how Jewish culture at that time defined the word neighbor would have been along the lines of like the person that lives near you that you like. So that's what neighbor would have meant when, when this is being uttered. It's similar to the way like when we throw a 4th of July party, we, we invite the neighbors that are close to us that we really like. Like those are the people we invite to our 4th of July party or our Super Bowl party. So think like that type of mindset. When they're commanded to love their neighbor, they're thinking, oh, I just need to love the people that live nearby me that I already like anyways. And this question of neighbor is an important one in Jewish culture because they really do want to like honor and follow Yahweh. They really do want to follow God. They want to obey his teachings. But often what happens is they take his teachings and they boil it down to this thing like that I can for sure do. And that's not the way of the kingdom. The way of the kingdom is a much bigger, broader perspective than this like checkbox of things that I, I know I already want to do. And if you've spent any time in the scriptures, you know that being a blessing to your neighbor is not a small story, but it runs through the entire scriptures. You see, God's plan in choosing Israel, that they would follow and obey him, obey God, and that in that they would be a light or a blessing, Genesis 12, to all the other nations around them, all their neighbors around them, and that those neighbors would experience the goodness of God through Israel, loving the other nations, loving the neighbors nearby. In the same way that the Spirit desires to do work in you and in me today, that like people who don't know Jesus, who don't experience God's love, that they would experience those things as we live in relationship with people who are far from God. So loving your neighbor is like deeply important, and it's a deeply important part of God's story. It's like quite literally the way God plans to reach the world. And as you read the New Testament, you see religious people constantly coming up to Jesus going like, tell me what neighbor means. Like, I need to know who I'm actually supposed to love. Make it simple, Jesus, and he never does. But the more important word in this line of scripture, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The more important word in this line of Scripture is not the word neighbor as much as it is the word love. And in the West, 
We have an interesting relationship with the word love. Love means a variety of things. Like, I love Sancho's Tacos right down the street. I love Locale. Those are my two favorite downtown restaurants. If you haven't been there, go soon. But I also, like, love my wife, and I love my children, and I love God. And surely the affection that I carry for Sancho's Tacos is not the same affection that I carry for God. And so love is a bit of a confusing word for us to use here. But originally, this word love in the Greek language, which the New Testament is written in primarily, um, there are many words in Greek for the word love. And this word, love your enemies, is the most committed, the most vulnerable, and the most other-centered word for love. It's the word agape. And the Greek word for what Jesus invites us to when he invites us to love our enemies is that we would agape our enemies. More often than not, this word agape in the scriptures describes the highest form of committed relationship. As mentioned earlier in Matthew 22, when when Jesus says love God and love neighbor, he is saying agape God and agape your neighbor. And then in Matthew 5, he drags in, agape your enemy. Do you see the, like, high-level commitment of this word? See the power of it? This word, like, it can't be about tacos. Like, this word is about you and about God. It's about family and close-knit community. It's about covenant. It's about, like, the highest frame of relationship humanly possible. And Jesus says, instead of turning our head or our life away from someone who wrongs us or hurts us, a very natural reaction, Jesus invites us to love them, which I would argue is a supernatural reaction, or maybe said differently, a little bit of heaven breaking in on earth. So Jesus takes this Jewish idiom, which has been widely practiced by nearly all of humanity, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and he very literally flips it on its head and says the way of the kingdom is different than that. The way of the kingdom is marked by love. Jesus tells us to love our enemy with the same sort of love that God has for us and that we are invited to have for God. And as previously pictured, this is not a passive love, but it's a deeply involved sort of love. This is a heart disposition that chooses to be for the best in people, chooses to be for the best in our enemies, because ultimately love is no fleeting feeling, but an intentionality of heart played out over the course of a lifetime, not just a moment. Scott McKnight describes agape as a love that seeks to be with and for the other person. This is a self-sacrificial love that exalts their good over the good of ourselves. That we as followers of Jesus would take the lowly position that we might serve what is best for them. That it's that sort of love. This is, like quite literally, this is godly love. This is the preference and delight in others before self. But what we encounter in Jesus' words here is, is nothing short of revolutionary. This, like, this is so unique. Everyone in human history has been a fan of loving your tribe, loving the people near you that you like. But nearly no one has been a fan of loving your enemy. And it may feel like light or flippant in some regard, but this idea is one of the very few, 
in the scriptures that separates following Jesus from every other secular ideology or religion in the world. It's like it's that revolutionary. It's that stark of a contrast. Everybody thinks we should love our neighbors. Nobody thinks we should love our enemy except for King Jesus. He says abiding in the kingdom means loving your enemy, loving those that are far from you. And the reason this is not believed by secular society or any other religions is because in most regard, it makes no human sense. It's illogical. It's irrational. No one would come to this conclusion on their own. You see, if nature and humanity are predisposed toward violence, which I believe they are, Jesus' teaching here is quite literally from the heavens. It is otherworldly in every sense of the meaning. And this is why as you look through church history, you see Christian martyrs all throughout history. You see people like Jim Elliott in 1956 who lays down his weapons to ensure not to take them, that the tribe, the Hurani tribe that he's trying to reach out to don't feel scared or intimidated knowing that he's putting his life on the line in order to build relationship that he might share the love of Jesus with them. You see him like taking up his cross in the most literal sense possible that heaven might break in in a space where it hasn't yet. Or further down the line, in 2018, we see John Allen Chow, who's killed by the Sentinelese people while trying to immerse himself in their culture. It's one of the last remaining tribal groups on earth that has no contact with anyone outside their few dozen people who've been born into the tribe. Or in 2009, a Catholic priest was canonized by Pope Francis, a priest by the name Father Damien, who moved on his own volition to a leper colony knowing the people that he served would cost him his life. And these people, they choose to live a cross-shaped life that are more about loving another person, in particular the people that would go on to kill them. And they choose that because that's what they believe following the way of Jesus is. And while these are examples of physical pain and suffering, the invitation is not just to that. It's also to the long, hard journey of walking through difficult, muddy, relational waters. It's also the, like, give your life away to people who will actually never do anything back for you giving your life away. It's me investing in people and in, in, in relationships that I have no gain from. No social capital is gained. They're never going to have me over to dinner. Like, that's what this is. That's the unique Christian love that Jesus demonstrated. And that he invites us to practice as we love our enemies. You see, when Jesus says these words, he does this with intention. When he teaches this teaching, he does so with intention. In verse 43, he uses the word enemy in a singular form. And in verse 44, he uses the word enemies in a plural form. So he says to not hate your enemy and then to love your enemies. There are many camps of Christian thought around this. That this type of like nonviolent love your enemy sacrifice is meant to happen in personal relationships on a one-to-one basis, but not in a like macro sort of sense, a societal sense or a cultural sense. And then there are other camps that believe this is for like society and culture, but it's not for personal relationships. And we believe at River and Way that it is for both. 
that the nonviolent way of Jesus, the way of the slaughtered lamb, is both for the personal relationship we find ourselves in and every sphere of, of culture we find ourselves in. That laying down our rights, our ideas, our convictions, our life for the way of Jesus is the invitation to follow him as we choose to love our enemies. God's, we would say that God's goal or God's end goal for followers of Jesus is to be people of love in all spaces, micro and macro, personal and public, in every space of your life that love would permeate that space, like enemy love would permeate that space, that we practice love in choosing the good of others over our own good, and even more so when what we are confronted with is evil, that we choose good over evil. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We spent time this last Monday praying through this scripture. I'm going to read it again. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And the other five antithesis of, of Matthew 5, anger, lust, oaths, divorce, eye for an eye. And by the way, I was like writing this, was like, those are really heavy topics. Well done, River and Way. Like we are like wading into the depth of following Jesus in his like most robust teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm just like super pumped that that's who we are. Um, but yeah, so, so, so those other five teachings in Matthew 5, those other five movements have been in movement toward like the inward of heart. So it's moved from like instead of, instead of don't commit adultery, it's whoever commits lust in their heart. Or instead of do not murder, it is whoever harbors anger in their heart. Do not manipulate people with your words would be an outpouring of an inward desire manipulation of the heart. And in this text, the movement is not necessarily moving inward, but Jesus is expanding a command and inviting us to be a person primarily marked by love. And of course, that's an inward movement. And if there is a place not marked by love, I want you to hear this clearly, if there is not a place marked by love, it is not God's place. And if there are people that are not marked by love, they are not primarily God's people. John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And as Jesus shares this teaching toward your enemy, he gives a simple, so he like gives us this instruction, love your enemy, and then he gives us a simple application. Read verse 44 with me. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we start as a community that desires to follow the person in the way of Jesus? How do we start loving our enemies? We pray for them. We pray for them. So often the decision to harbor anger or hate and grow in hard-heartedness toward another person begins in our hearts. But when we begin to pray, when we bring these people, God knows our hearts, he knows our feelings. When we bring these things to God, then God does a work in us that we might become people of love for the people that we previously, like, had hard-heartedness to or they were our enemies. So Jesus gives us this clear example of, of when this happens, when you have enemies, and you will, then you should pray. And even if a relationship is, like, toxic, 
We pray for those people. And it may not be best right now that you re-engage in full relationship with those people, but we become people of prayer. We refuse to allow our hearts to grow hard to those people. We continue to choose to love them, even if we're not in current relationship with them. We pray for them in the hopes that prayer may one day be a phone call, and it may not. But prayer may one day be a phone call, and a phone call may one day be a meeting, and a meeting may one day be a dinner. We try, as Jesus often does, to move our enemies from outside the camp back to the table, to where we make our enemies our neighbors. We refuse to allow people far from us, enemies far from us, to be people who are far off in our hearts. That is what Jesus is saying when he says, pray for your enemies. Don't allow people to be far off in your heart. We cry out for them that God would bring hope and healing in their lives and in our relationship. We don't sit morally on top of them and cast imprecatory prayers down at them. We choose to love them with everything we are as we cry out to God, even in like jumbled, broken, messy words. Then we cry out all the more. We come alongside them. If we can't in person, we come alongside them in prayer. And verse 45 says, we do this, and Jesus kind of gets to our motivation, we do this that you might be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus leans into the motivation for his instruction, which should deeply encourage our motivations as we follow Jesus today. Jesus says that those who love their enemy are children of their Father in heaven. You see, Jesus could have said a lot of things here. He could have said, like, if you do this, you're going to harbor anger and hate, and that's not good for you. He could have said, if you do this and you don't forgive them, it's like drinking poison that's going to, like, poison a little bit of your own soul, too. And, and that's true, but that's not what Jesus says here. He could have said the lack of forgiveness in this, like, cycle of hurt and pain that you continue to exist in, you're not going to break out of it unless you choose to love them. But that's not what he says. Jesus said to love your enemies because this is how we act like God in the world. He said to love your enemies because this is how we act like God in the world. This is how we demonstrate who God is to the world by the way that we love. And there is no more radical example of love than God's love for us. Part of our invitation to follow Jesus is to join Jesus in the work of making your enemy your friend. You see, that's what God did for us. Verse 45 through 47 says, He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than any other? Do not even pagans do that? You see, this picture of an agrarian society depends on sunshine and rain, much like the farming community here in Bakersfield. But it depends on sunshine and rain. And, and historically, sun and rain has been viewed as like God's favor or God's blessing being poured out. And what Jesus says here is that God's favor, God's blessing, sunshine, and rain is falling both on the godly and the ungodly. That those who do good get sunshine and rain, which makes sense to us, but those who do evil get sunshine and rain, and that, my friends, does not make sense to us. His good intentions for the world, 
Some people may call this common grace, and that is less important, but seeing God's heart here is more important. God pours out his character of love and provision on all people. And this is a picture of the people that we ought to be, because while we don't control the rain and the sun, if we did, would we pour it out on our neighbors and our enemies? Because God does. And Jesus says that to be like our Father, we should love our neighbors. We should pour out rain and sunshine on our neighbors and our enemies. And then Jesus sort of goes on to mock the reality that, of course, you love the people that love you. Everyone, the pagans do that. They have nothing to do with Yahweh. They have nothing to do with, with God choosing to love them, and they love the people that love them. And it, like, it's a bit of a slap in the face, like a soft one, because Jesus isn't violent, but it's like a bit of a slap in the face of like, of course you love the people that love you. Anyone can do that. We should, like, th- that should be like easy to see. Let's continue. Verse 48, the last verse will look at in this section. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This last piece of text can be a bit tricky. And you may have to do your own study on it or take my word for it, whatever you prefer. But the translation here is a tough one in the English. The word teleos in the Greek is a bit simpler. That's what this word is. The word perfect uh, in the Greek is the word teleos, and it's a bit easier to handle. You see, in the West, as English speakers, as soon as we see the word perfect, in particular in a Christian community, we see the word perfect and go like morally perfect. That's what this means. And that's not what Jesus is actually saying. Jesus is not speaking to moral perfection. Jesus is speaking to the teleos, which is like the end goal of something. If you took a philosophy class in undergrad, like the one you took, you may remember telos. It means the end goal of like a philosophical conviction. Like what are you aiming towards? And that is what I believe this text is actually getting after. When, when Jesus says to be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, he's inviting us to a complete way, a whole way, a holistic way. Like the end goal of Christian living is this. And it's the conclusion. It's not just tucked on as like an additional point. It's the conclusion to the previous section. So Jesus is describing that like enemy love is the end goal the end aim of what Christian life is aimed toward. And I would suggest that like Jesus is wrapping up this section in verse 20 when Jesus talks about fulfilling the law. He instructs us that our righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees. And then in verse 47, Jesus says, you should do more than others. What you are doing or what are you doing more than others? That's that same word as like the surpass word. And so Jesus is tying this whole thing together and wrapping this conclusion on the end, saying this whole section is ultimately about becoming a person of love. That's what it means to be perfect as our Father is perfect. He is a complete whole person, complete whole entity, being of love. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to as we like swim in the waters of his kingdom. And I think part of this is we need to be more clear about what following Jesus actually looks like. And I would suggest that Christian maturity is a life that is primarily marked by love. 
The primary indicator of Christian maturity is a life marked by love, love for God, love for neighbor, and as Jesus extends in this text, love for enemy. Or as Rosaria Butterfield says in The Gospel Comes with a House Key, fantastic book, we hope that our strangers become our neighbors and that our neighbors become like family. And in that same sort of light, Jesus here is getting after, like, taking someone on the outside, taking someone far off, and that may not be, like, an enemy that's distant. That may be an enemy that lives in the same home as you, but your heart has grown hard to. And so we take those people and we desire to come near with them again. In that same light, sorry, I think that, um, I think that the great question that we should ask ourselves as we're on this journey of following Jesus. The question about maturity, the question about growing in Christ-likeness, often we ask lots of questions around maturation that, that don't feel super helpful. And what I mean by that is like often, I remember as a kid, I used to think like, man, if I memorize more of the Bible, then I'll be like a super Christian. And that's not a thing, by the way, super Christians, it's not a thing. Um, but if I memorize more of the Bible, like that's what it means to mature and grow. And then I met someone who didn't follow Jesus that knew way more Bible than I did. And like I couldn't memorize or catch up to as much as they knew. And so like that question, while I think memorizing the scriptures is important, that's not the primary question that we should ask ourselves when we talk about maturing in the faith. The question we should use, the baseline question we should use is, where am I on my journey to becoming a person of love like Christ was? Or more clearly defined today, where do I stand in relation to love for my enemy? That question is the one that reveals whether we are demonstrating God's love to the world and being perfect or being made perfect whether we are whole and complete and actually aimed toward the end goal of loving God and loving neighbor just as our Father in heaven. And is this even possible? Like this radical idea of nonviolent enemy love where we choose to lay our lives down for other people. Is this possible? If you have a Bible, turn to Romans 5. Turn to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 8 through 10 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, or far off, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Verse 10, For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of the Son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You see, each of us, if you follow the way of Jesus, each of us are an actual representation of far-off enemies being brought near to God. This is God's, like, consistent character and pattern of taking those that are far off and bringing them to the table together, bringing them into love together, bringing them into relationship together. And we are invited as our Father in heaven to, to be that in this world, in this city, in your workplace, in your circle of friends that you've had for a long time, but like they just don't follow Jesus and they think church is really weird. And sometimes it is. That's true. But that doesn't mean that we don't bring love to the table. 
we always bring love to the table. Even with our enemies, we bring love to the table. So as we wrap up, I think, I think there's kind of two questions. Three questions. First is, who are your enemies? Who are the people that, like, you've just written off in your hearts? And some of that's macro. Some of that's, like, people with different ideologies. Like, back in the day, we would have said ISIS is an enemy. Um, some of, for some people, it's like, man, people with this political ideology, I just don't trust them, don't like them, can't do it, can't sit at the same table with them. Or maybe it's not this like macro ideological conviction, but it's actually much closer to you. It's the person that you were vulnerable with and you thought you could trust and then they betrayed your trust. It's the person you've allowed your heart to grow hard to. It's the person that, um, that knew you so well that like how could they possibly do that to you? Maybe it's someone you, even you still talk to, but you just refuse to like be honest and loving toward them anymore. You don't display Christian love. You don't display like laying down your own life and choosing them over you. And one of the important things that this text does is, is first it gives you permission to have enemies. This is an expectation. Is that in life that there will be people who stand against us. People who stand in the way of us becoming uh, who we desire to become. And I would argue that those enemies are actually the pathway. That's the pathway. That's the opportunity which exists in front of us to display Christ-like love. And the second question would be, if you've named your enemies, if you know your enemies, if you've identified them, one or many, whatever it may be, where are you in the journey of making your enemy your neighbor again? Where are you in the journey of taking people who are far off and bringing them near at a relational heart, real level? And I understand this is a difficult teaching. Jesus does that sometimes. He'll mess with your world. And this is a beautiful way where Jesus messes with our world that we might become more like him. And so my encouragement as we, as we kind of wrap up today is that wherever you're at in that process, maybe you've named your enemies, maybe you haven't. Um, if you've named them, pray for them. It's what Jesus instructs us to do here. And as you pray for them, allow your heart to grow to love them again. That doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that you could sit down at a table tomorrow and have an honest conversation about the last 12 years. But what it does mean is that I can begin to allow my heart to change by the work of the Spirit as I go to God on their behalf. And that's something that's supernaturally powerful, that is irrational, that we don't understand. But we do it because Jesus says to and we trust him. We trust that he is good, and he actually has the words of life. Lastly, why is this so important? You see, enemy love is, is like we talked about earlier, like one of the key foundational pieces of a Jesus-following community. There are plenty of places you could be out in the world, like mountain biking or fly fishing. There's plenty of things to do on a Sunday morning. Go for a run. Not now because it's smoky, so don't run. But, um, but plenty of things you could do. But one of the things that, that church does, one of the things, when I say church, I mean God's people. Um, one of the things that God's people does is we choose to lay down our life for those that are far away from God. We choose to lay down our life for those that are far away from us. And that's because while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. 
Jesus doesn't give us an instruction that he doesn't fulfill himself. Jesus lived out the fullness of loving your enemies, that they might come near. And so we practice the way of Jesus. We practice like cross-shaped life. We practice self-sacrificial love. We practice love where we'll never get anything in return. We'll practice a love that's not transactional that I don't see the immediate benefit for me on the other side. We practice that love because it's the way of the kingdom, and it's the way of King Jesus. And so we desire, as we sit under these words and their heavy words, we desire, oh, in the depths of our soul, we desire for this to be true for us. We desire to grow in these ways, to grow into people. We actually, like, want to be people of love, people marked by following the way of Jesus. And that won't come through rational, calculated decisions. That comes through, like, trust and submission to Jesus, the King. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that we were far off from you and you chose to love us. You chose to seek us, to come, like, come get us. Because your heart's desire was that we would be with you that we would come near again, that we would be a part of your family. And I pray that even as this, like, Scripture churns things and people and situations in our heart, that we would, like, find ourselves crying out to you from this place, not rationalizing away why we really shouldn't reach out to the person. Keep us from that spirit. But may we come to you with open hands and open hearts saying, God, I, I want to obey you. I want to follow you. I don't know how. I don't know how to actually do this. I'm so, like, maybe, like, I'm so angry, like, I can't let go of this. Or I'm so hurt that I just don't trust anymore. And just pray now that the Spirit would, like, minister to your heart today. That you would see, like, God's picture of love for you. This is a picture of flourishing. This is a picture of a new way to live, a new way to be human. That, of course, doesn't make sense to us, but the King, the King of kings and the Lord of lords says this is the way to life. This is the way to be whole and complete like my Father is whole and complete. So, Spirit, we just ask that you would minister to us during this time. We ask that you would uh, churn our hearts and souls, remind us of your love for us. That while we were far off, that you came for us. We love you, Jesus. We sing to you now. Praise sings in your name. Amen.